This week in KMA land, Wind Project receives the backing of Page County officials. The Page County EMA director search is still underway. Missourians decided their party nominees, state recovering from bird flu outbreak. Stanton gets a peek into the future of housing development, and it was rodeo week in KMA land. I'm Ethan Hewitt. A long-debated wind turbine project received approval from Page County officials. By a 2-to-1 vote at its regular meeting Tuesday, the Page County Board of Supervisors approved of Energy's permit application for a Shenandoah Hills wind project south of Shenandoah, which straddles the Page-Fremont County line. The approval came after a lengthy public comment period and discussion with Page County Horizons regarding multiple concerns with the project. Well, the proposal also came despite a new concern raised by numerous residents about five turbines that would be constructed on or near a Buckeye Partners petroleum line that also runs within a mile of multiple residents. While reading from a letter from a Buckeye Rep Partners representative, Page County resident Jesse Stimson says the company has reached no agreement with Invenergy regarding the five turbines' locations. They have to have plans approved by Buckeye, and they do not. We have tower setback requirements. We will need to have arc fault study done, high voltage study, need to address the equipment on Buckeye's right-of-way and air bridging for shallow pipe. We will have to have crossing agreements signed before we work, before work can take place. Well, Barb Oliver of Northboro, one of the residents near the gas line, says she was informed by the Buckeye representative the line is only three feet underneath the surface near turbines 15, 51, 52, 53, and 63 on the proposed project map. Additionally, Sherry Brink, who lives near Farragut, says representatives have informed her the lines can be even shallower and require special permission to cross. Because this line is only one foot underground now, one foot. The gal I talked to from Kansas City said they can't even drive across this without any permission. They could rupture that line. It's either car gas jet fuel or diesel fuel going through that line. Residents urged the board to look into the gas line before approving the project. While new topics were introduced, Jenny Burkheiser with KYFR in Shenandoah says some progress had been made on a possible agreement with Invenergy, but Family Station's legal counsel had advised having an agreement before the county voted on the project. Well, she says pushing the approval through Tuesday night was rushing that process and giving them just days to acquire the necessary data and legal team to assemble a settlement agreement. We've really um, done so much to try to make meet this requirement, our legal, to protect ourselves legally and get an agreement together. We had our attorney draft it today and present it to, and, you know, to Mr. Litchfield and Mr. Lampa. And, you know, the whole reason I asked for the extension was so we'd have time to make an agreement. And that's what they said. We don't have enough time to review this. So it's kind of, you're kind of um, forcing us to fail in reaching an agreement. Well, Burkheiser adds, should the turbines be mitigated and constructed, the station would still likely need to relicense its towers. Supervisor Chuck Morris says the FCC guidelines involving a three-kilometer setback from AM towers would require Invenergy to take down the turbines should they not mitigate the disturbance properly. But the issue would likely need to be handled in court between the two companies. Additionally, continued concerns were aired, some of which date back to when the ordinance was established in 2019, calling for a compromise on possibly moving setbacks to the property line rather than the residence, reducing the proposed project boundary, and beefing up the decommissioning requirements. However, Clarinda resident Crystal Worrell says the issue ultimately comes down to an energy's lack of transparency throughout the permit application process. When you advertise for something specific and don't get the right applicants for the job, you rewrite the specifications and requirements and post it again. Invenergy is a global company who has done projects in different countries all over the world. You would think they would be a well-oiled machine, 
and be willing to be transparent in their practices. Instead, they conduct themselves as snake oil salesmen and con men shortchanging a gas station clerk. Sloppy contractors rarely do quality work. Oklahoma resident Brian Whip also questioned how a 26-page ordinance such as the county's wind energy conversion system document passed in two meetings compared to a seven-page UTV ordinance that took nearly two months to pass. After Morris' motion to approve the application, Supervisor Jacob Holmes, who cast the loan dissenting vote, stated his opposition was rooted in dishonesty, broken agreements, and poor business ethics, ethics from Invenergy. I mean, we've got errors everywhere. We've got things that aren't complete. We've got things that aren't done. We've got things that are in question. And I'm very disappointed in J.D. in this material change definition, which I think does not hold water. And there is... As far as Page County goes, if four turbines were removed or even three turbines were over 10%, so even his own email I got that said there wasn't 10%, in Page County there will be more than, I don't see any way in the world there won't be three turbines removed which would make a material change, which would mean this should not, this should be back to the drawing board. It should not be passed. Well, Morris, who voted in favor of the application, along with Supervisor's Chair Alan Armstrong, says legal guidance from Ehlers and Cooney on Friday gave him confidence the county can move forward with approving the application, particularly regarding the proposed project boundary. This application grandfathers nothing in that simply shows where the land contracts exist. And... In the witness of all of us and our county attorney and our auditor's representative said there's absolutely no way that additional turbines could be built if this contract or uh, application was approved without another application. However, Holmes added legal counsel did leave more room for error on the situation with a turbine located under a half mile from the Wabash Trail's nature trail. He states the ordinance contradicts whether the trail would fall within a required half mile setback for public areas not listed as a state or federal park or managed by Page County Conservation. Notably, the board's approval did not include contingencies for the current scenarios with FCC guidelines regarding KYFR, the turbine near the Wabash Trace, or the introduction issue, introduced issue with the Buckeye Partners gas line running through the proposed project area. Morris says the issues are not tied directly to the matter at hand for the board, which is compliance with the county ordinance. Invenergy received approval from Fremont County on its portion of the project late last month. While wind turbines have been settled, a decision on a new emergency management agency director in Page County will still have to wait at least a few more weeks. By a 6-1 vote at a special meeting Wednesday, the Page County EMA Commission approved to re-advertise for the position vacated by Chris Griebert, who resigned back in May. Chuck Morris serves as the Board of Supervisors voting member on the commission. Morris says the board came to the decision after interviewing two possible candidates after the field of six applications was whittled down by an executive hiring committee. That hiring committee was comprised of the police and fire chiefs from Shenandoah and Clarenda, Page County Sheriff Lyle Palmer, and Montgomery County EMA Director Brian Hammond, and also integrated EMS personnel input. Well, after the executive committee presented their two finalists, Morris says the full commission didn't feel comfortable in making an offer Wednesday. Thus, he says they will advertise in the local newspapers once more, and the application deadline is set for August 31st. Well, Palmer was the lone dissenting vote for re-advertising the position. Well, it was a busy Tuesday night in Missouri as voters decided their candidates for the November general elections. Well, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt has won a highly contested race to be the GOP nominee for one of the state's U.S. Senate seats. Schmidt tallying just over 45% of the vote in a 21-candidate field for the Republican nod to replace outgoing Senator Roy Blunt. Well, Schmidt bested the field that included U.S. Representative Vicki Hartzler as well as former Governor Eric Reitens, who resigned in 2018 amid scandal. Well, in his victory speech Tuesday night, Schmidt says he wants to take his Missouri attitude to the nation's capital. I'm proud of my working class roots. 
and I'm going to Washington to fight for working families, defeat socialism, and lead the fight to save America. Well, the primary drew national eyeballs as former President Donald Trump did not specifically endorse one candidate, but instead endorsed Eric. Schmidt says it is key for Republicans to regain control of the Senate. We are entering the most consequential decade in American history since the Civil War. The Democrats aren't playing small ball. They're playing for keeps. They're two votes away, two votes away in the United States Senate from packing the Supreme Court, adding states to the union, federalizing our elections, instituting amnesty and open borders, destroying our economy with the Green New Deal. They want to fundamentally change this country forever. Well, on the Democratic side, Trudy Bush Valentine defeated Lucas Kuntz for her party's nomination. The retired nurse and member of the Anheuser-Busch Brewing family took the contest with 43% of the vote compared to Kuntz's 38%. Valentine says she looks forward to possibly representing the state. I would be so grateful to represent this great state and work hard every day to make our home the best it can be. Thank you, Missouri. Well, Schmidt and Valentine will face off in the November general elections. Well, also at the federal level, incumbent Northern Missouri Congressman Sam Graves of Tarkio cruised to a victory in the Republican primary as he seeks a 12th term in office. Graves was declared the winner in the race shortly after polls closed at 7 p.m., garnering over 76% of the vote. Graves currently represents the wide-ranging 6th Congressional District, which stretches from the Missouri River to the Mississippi River. Well, in an interview prior to the election with KMA News, Graves said he wants to continue to represent his constituents and give them a voice in Washington, D.C. I think that's extraordinarily uh, important. I don't represent um, D.C. It's the district, you know, and, and that's what I've been doing for some time now. And the, the uh, you know, the voters have blessed me with the opportunity to, uh, to do that. And I hope they give me the opportunity to do it for a uh, uh, another term. Well, Graves, who also still runs a farming operation near Tarkio, says he looks forward to continuing to help out his constituents, including veterans' needs or assistance with Medicaid or Medicare. Well, as the Republican leader for the House's Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, Graves says one issue he is particularly interested in moving forward is an oversight on the dollars soon to be coming down for the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. $1.2 trillion is a tremendous amount of money, and you know we're seeing that money just being shoved out the door. And it leaves the opportunity for a lot of fraud and abuse in those programs. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time in oversight, uh, just making sure that the money is going where it was intended, making sure that the intent of the law is being followed. Well, the win sets up a November general election for Graves against Henry Martin, a U.S. Army veteran who won the Democratic nomination with around 46 percent of the vote. Well, a veteran of the Missouri State House has won the GOP primary race for a state Senate seat representing a large chunk of northwest Missouri. Rusty Black, a Republican from Chillicothe, pulled away for a comfortable primary win over two other challengers for the seat, which is being vacated by Dan Hegeman, who is term limited. Well, Black garnered just under 65 percent of the vote to advance to November's general election against Democrat Michael Bomley, who was unchallenged for his party's nomination. Well, in a previous interview with KMA News, Black said he decided to run for state Senate seat when new maps drawn in the spring placed his home county back with the rest of northwest Missouri. I think my background as an ag educator, as a parent, serving on these different commodity agricultural groups, matched this district as close as anybody does. And you know, 
I'm looking forward to an opportunity to represent the Northwest Central District. Well, first elected to the State House in 2016, Black is a retired ag teacher working in both Nottoway Holt and Chillicothe school districts. He says state senators must be well-versed in a wider range of issues than state representatives because there are less senators to get work done in Jefferson City. I'm interested in the appropriations process. As an ag teacher, that was important to me. Uh, we build a large complex and handled quite a bit of money through a small high school ag program. And good or bad, it took money to be able to do those things and trying to control that, make sure it was used wisely was something I was very interested in. And I will continue that focus if I end up being a state senator. I want to be involved in on the state senate side instead of calling it a budget committee. They call it appropriations committee. So that will be my goal, to be active on that committee. Well, another area of legislative race is Jeff Farnham won the Republican primary for the Missouri House's 1st District, which includes Atchison, Holt, Nottoway, and Gentry counties. Well, still to come, what role could 3D printers play in future housing developments as the state on the back end of the bird flu outbreak and rodent communities threw down earlier this week? All that coming up on This Week in KMA Land. Well, and welcome back to This Week in KMA Land. While recovery will take some time, state officials are confident the state is on the back end of the latest bird flu outbreak. That's according to Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Neg, who tells KMA News the last quarantine on a commercial poultry site has been lifted after the highly pathogenic avian influenza impacted 19 sites across the state since the first case in early March. But he adds four backyard flocks are still under quarantine for at least the rest of the summer. With case numbers dropping rapidly, Neg says now is the time to reflect on how the state and producers responded to the outbreak. What went well? What are some things that we need to improve? And then how can we apply those lessons that we've learned to our work to uh, respond to African swine fever, foot and mouth disease? So this is a very, very important time to, you know, we're, uh, we're surveying our, our people that were involved in the outbreak. We will hold stakeholder meetings. We will really intensely look at our plans and say, how did we do and then how can we improve? While nearly 13 million birds were still killed by the avian flu or killed to stop the spread, Neg says the situation was a significant improvement from 2015, which saw 77 sites affected across the state. Well, he attributed efforts from commercial producers in improving biosecurity as a significant factor in preventing a larger disaster, particularly monitoring what goes in and out of their property. You know, in 15, we saw a lot of movement of the virus between farms, uh, you know, it moved by people or equipment or vehicles. And so that was a major learning was that we had all that lateral movement and, and that needed to be addressed. And so producers really uh, needed to take better, pay, pay closer attention to what was coming on and off of their farms. Well, additionally, he says the state discovered the virus much sooner than in 2015, allowing producers to contain and dispose of the virus more effectively. Neg says the U.S. Department of Agriculture did provide compensation for the lost birds and assist in cleanup costs. However, he adds the funding is vital due to the possible impacts the outbreak can have on worldwide trade. Foreign animal diseases, they are things that impact international trade. If, if we have high path here, countries around the world will say, no, we, we don't want your poultry products. We do the same thing when, when a trading partner has a, an outbreak. We will say, well, we don't want to trade with you. And so it has huge implications for not just the producer that's affected, but for the whole industry. Ohio is the top egg producing state in the country with nearly 60 million egg laying hens and ranks seventh for turkey production, raising around 12 million turkeys every year. Well, the virus also impacted other states, including Nebraska, Missouri, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. 
When the outbreak began, state officials indicated interactions with migratory birds as the primary culprit. Oneg says that still appears to be the case as the outbreak slowly worked its way down the East Coast and into the Midwest. Really what we believe, and I think the, the data supports this and the testing supports this, is that uh, really all, all of the introductions in the state of Iowa were likely caused by independent wild bird introductions. And so that is something that's, you know, again, concerning because we have birds that will migrate, you know, south in the fall and north in the spring, and, and that's going to going to occur every year. Well, Dag made his comments on KMA's Morning Land program Wednesday morning, and you can hear the fun of you at KMALand.com. Well, on top of holding monthly meetings, Peterson says one of the more extensive duties is filling filing safety incident reports. When filling the part-time position, Peterson says the board initially proposed keeping the job in-house. The best fit would probably be somebody that's already employed within the county, uh, maybe not full-time, maybe full-time, and this is uh, above and beyond 40 hours. You know, it, it, it just it's going to depend on who the individual is and, and what we can make work. Well, the board is expected to reopen the discussion at its regular meeting next week. Well, small southwestern Iowa community has acquired a peek into the possible future of housing development. Farmers Mutual Telephone Company in Stanton recently obtained a large new industrial 3D printer, which operators recently showcased to area mayors, city officials, and economic development representatives. Well, FMTC CEO Kevin Cabbage tells KMA News the printer found its way to Stanton after his company assisted in creating a startup company, Alquist 3D. He adds the company has already printed two homes using a concrete mixture in Virginia. Well, Cabbage says one of the long-term goals is to bring that capability of printing houses to Iowa. We don't have a definite timeline in in mind because we want to prove this out uh, here in Iowa and get all the techniques and the procedures uh, in place before we commit to to printing a home. But that definitely is on our radar screen to do as as soon as we are ready. Well, as a minority owner of the printing company, Cabbage says they had the opportunity to bring the printer to Iowa in hopes of seeing how the construction material operates in the environment. Thus, he adds that FMTC has hired an individual to manage the printer. How it operates, but more importantly, working with the actual concrete mixture itself because it is a different type of concrete mixture, Um, but yet it is still concrete, and, and everything that concrete does uh, in, in our environment. Well, additionally, Cabbage says FMTC hopes to utilize the printer to provide cost efficiencies in their own materials for fiber-to-the-home projects. One of the main items is, is buried vaults that we use to run our fiber optic materials through. So we're prototyping now with, with actually the manufacturing of our own materials for ourselves just to help give us better control over the price and the the availability of those products as we continue to move forward with our construction of fiber optics in Southwest Iowa. While concrete homes are nothing new, Cabbage adds the new printer method provides the opportunity to address a desire and need from several surrounding communities for a potentially more cost-effective housing development process. The printer really opens up the creativity to, to utilize it for as much of the construction technique as possible. So with the intent, hopefully, is, is finding a way that we can keep the initial cost of homes down 
so that we can continue to see new homes built. Well, other 3D printing efforts designed to boost housing include Iowa State University's 3D Affordable Innovative Technologies Housing Project, which is intended to construct a 40-unit development in Hamburg to assist in recovering from the 2019 flooding. Well, known for his work around the country, Sydney native Josh Hilton's returned home once again as the music director for the 99th annual Sydney Rodeo. Hilton grew up in Sydney and was involved with rodeo his whole life. He says Sydney continues to hold a special place in his heart each year. It's just been a family legacy, and, and this rodeo has been, the, was the, I mean, growing up, this was everything. You know, you look forward to it all summer, all year, but especially in the summer, and then uh, it was so depressing when it got over because uh, school was about to start. <laughs> this has been a big part of, of our lives for a long time. Well, Hilton travels around the country providing the sights and sounds for a number of rodeos. He also serves as rodeo director for the San Angelo, Texas Stock Show and Rodeo, where he currently lives. Well, after attending Iowa Western Community College to study broadcasting, Hilton says he started small and worked his way up in the rodeo world. Servies, the, the stock contractors that have been here since I think like 63, Mike Servie, um, now his boys have been running the company for a long time, but uh, 15 years ago they got me, or, oh shoot, oh, 2008 I guess, so um, they uh, had me do some music at some of their smaller rodeos and and that kind of broke me in, and and after a couple of years of that, I got Denver, the National Western, and that really set me set me on a I don't know a, a heck of a ride. Well, Hilton has been named PRCA Music Director of the Year multiple times, including the inaugural award in 2017. He says he hopes the people of the area continue to support Sydney's rodeo to keep the tradition going. I really hope people in southwest Iowa, you know, southeast Nebraska, northwest Missouri, you know, really come to support this because, it, you know, it, it's hard to compete with a lot of big rodeos. You know, this growing up, uh, there wasn't as many rodeos as there is now. And so it's hard to compete. And I just, if we just keep uh, keep everybody coming and supporting this great local event, and that's, that's what I truly pray for is that, that everybody, you know, continues uh, to keep the magic in Sydney, Iowa for another hundred years. Well, in addition to his work at rodeos around the country, Hilton co-hosts the Rump Chat podcast with 10-time PRCA Rodeo Clown of the Year, Justin Rumford, who was also back in Sydney this week. Well, the 99th Sydney Rodeo has been running Tuesday through Friday, and the final show will be tonight at 8 p.m. And for more information, you can visit sydneyiowarodeo.com. Well, you can also hear the full interview with Hilton at kmalian.com. Well, for the 45th straight year, the Carson Community Rodeo hit the arena this week. Originally started as a small rodeo on a hill, the event has grown and evolved in the Ray Car Arena. It's one of the premier events in the area. Well, Brad Forrestal is a member of the rodeo committee. He says they truly embrace their community moniker. It takes every person and every business in our area to help put this thing on. And just the outpouring of support we get from volunteers and businesses in our area. There's never anything left undone. If there's a, a loose spot or a loose link in the chain, we got somebody that'll step up and fill it in. So we can't thank our community and volunteers enough for all the support we get around here in our area. It's a, truly a community rodeo. We're really proud of what we got going. Rodeo performances were held Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 8 p.m. with gates open at 6 p.m. Well, Thursday night featured mutton busting and stick horse races. Friday had a street dance, and today includes a rodeo parade at 10:30 and another street dance following the rodeo. Forrestal says the rodeo continues to bring in the best of the best in the business. We've got Anthony Lucia on the mic, and uh, Ryder Kisner is our man in the can. We call him the uh, the barrel man, but he's a world champion trick roper. that does stuff with the NFR and granddaddy of them all, all these big rodeos all around the country. So 
We've got the best stock from Three Hills Rodeo. They do stuff the NFR. We've got the best entertainment, the best stock, the best cowboys in the world. Right now, as we sit, we've got a 2021 World Champion Saddle Blanc Rider. And last year, we've got a gentleman that was uh, number seven in the world. They're both parked down there ready to ride tonight. So we're looking to see some good shows. Like other industries, rodeo cowboys and cowgirls have been feeling the effects of higher fuel prices traveling around the country. Forrestal says the Carson Rodeo is trying to do its part to continue to attract the best rodeo athletes. We've upped our prize money and added money a little bit, trying to make it a little bit more appeasing, help ease a little bit of that for them. Uh, we've got some more challenge riders, we call them. So each event will pick one rider or roper, barrel race, or whatever it may be. We'll throw an extra little money at them if they, if they catch or if they ride. They'll get an extra little money just try to make it a little bit more worth their time. Well, you can hear the full interview with Forrestal at KMALand.com. Well, that wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Ethan Hewitt. Thanks for joining us, and have a great weekend.